Hi, thanks so much for inviting me into your house today. And today as we continue to just be in God's presence, allow God just to speak to your heart. Allow him to talk to you. One of the um, main points of Crosstown Church is that we are constantly, no matter what age we are, no matter the color of our skin or whatever gender we are, no matter what age we are, that we're always being learners, lovers, and leaders in our relationship with Christ and in the world around us. Well, we've been talking about cherishing, and we have talked about it in the concept of of marriage. We've talked about uh, in the concept of race and family at work. We've talked about it in a lot of different areas. And, you know, we were having a Bible study one Wednesday night, and we talked about conflicts and how to argue better. And and, uh, so many of the ideas that were shared were so good, and I wanted to just bring them here today to talk about the need for better conflicts. And I, I know that sounds really like the antithesis of Christianity. But if you're going to have really good relationships, meaningful relationships, you're going to have conflicts. And so we need to do conflict better. We need to learn about having the best conflicts possible. And again, it really does make me laugh just thinking about it. But so we need to talk about how we interact when we disagree with each other. Um, The problem with our ideology on conflict is that we usually have a paradigm of winner-loser. You know, whenever you look at YouTube and you want to look at some videos about maybe some um, arguments that were going on, maybe some debates, you'll, you'll see the titles for them like this. It'll say, Christian blows up atheist, or Jordan Peterson embarrasses feminist. Or Ben Shapiro destroys neo-Nazi, or Young Earther bashes Young Earther, um, and 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 it always sets up this conflict with a winner and with a loser. Um, but let me ask you: Who wants to live in that community, where every interaction, every conflict establishes a winner and a loser? Who wants to be a part of that marriage? I mean, because if you're going to have that kind of conflict paradigm, then there's somebody in the marriage that's always going to be the loser, and then there's always going to be the winner, and then the desire to reverse it. Who wants to call that place home? But if you think Jesus didn't have conflict, then you need to read the Gospels again. The reason why we don't think of Jesus as somebody who is in conflict is because the purpose and the methodology of his conflict was so holistic. Now, what I mean by holistic is that it, it wasn't conflict for shock, it wasn't for the win, and it wasn't just to be right. It was for the healing, uh, for the love, for the correction of the relationship to bring about wholeness in that relationship. It had, it had a purpose, it had meaning to it. And the way that he conducted himself in the middle of it, um, people were able to interpret what he was after. Now, if you decontextualize Jesus just as well as anybody that we may hear on the news, um, his statements and actions would actually make him look like a crazy man. Um, Let's just say, um, if we were to decontextualize him flipping over tables in the temple, I mean, that would look absolutely crazy if that's all we saw. If we um, saw him making that whip and driving people out of the temple and whipping them as they went out the door, we would say this guy is, is totally lost it. Or, or how about when he was calling the religious people of his day vipers or 
gravestones or headstones. Um, or when he turned on the apostle Peter and called him Satan. Or that other place where he told a whole group of people that they should hate their mothers. Now, I know you're shaking your head. It's like, wait a minute, Jesus didn't do that. Well, if we decontextualize some of his statements, if we pull out his motive, if we, if we totally eliminate what he's after and the way that he does it in the midst of conflict, we would end up with a madman. See, bad conflicts allow you to be decontextualized, marginalized, and then categorized. That's what happens when a conflict goes bad. It's so easily just to pull out certain things about your, your viewpoint, whether it's in a marriage or whether it's on the stage of, of uh, media, but you can be marginalized. Somebody will all of a sudden begin to categorize you as, oh, I know what your kind of person that you are and just eliminate your opinion altogether. And if you're going to have meaningful relationships, you're going to have conflict. Your purpose and your methodology of conflict will reveal much about you. And here's, the, here's an important part. And it will also reveal how much you value the other relationship. How you interact with that other person will say a lot about how, what you think about them. So here's a couple things that we came up with on how to do conflict well. First is... Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Now, this is a huge step in any conflict, even when you've been wrong. Um, the apostle prayed this in Hebrews 13, 18. He said, pray for us, um, for us so that we can be sure how we have a clear conscience, that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorable in all things. Um, he says, I really need to know that I have a clear conscience in this matter that I'm about to enter into. I need to check myself before I wreck this relationship. Why am I in this argument? What is my motive? Why am I in the midst of this conflict? Why am I in this particular conversation? And then you have to ask yourself, is this the right person to be talking to? Proverbs 29, nine says, if a wise man has an argument with a fool, the fool only rages and laughs, and there is no quiet. It is so important for us to understand our motives and why we're getting into a conflict with uh, not only on a particular subject, but with the particular person that we're having this conflict. You know, um, did you ever notice that Jesus, when he's arrested, being prepared to be crucified, they bring him to Pilate, and then they bring him to Herod, and then they bring him back to Pilate again. Did you ever notice that Jesus doesn't talk to everyone in this process? He talks to Pilate. Pilate, Pilate asks him some questions about authority and um, about you know, truth. And, and Jesus has some interaction with Pilate and answers some of his questions. But when Herod saw Jesus, he was glad because he had long desired to see Jesus. And this is what the scripture says, because he had heard much about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned Jesus at some length, but, he, but Jesus made no answer. And the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Luke 23, verse eight. Um, you see, Jesus knew that Herod really didn't want an answer. Now, there was something in Pilate that the discernment of Christ knew that Pilate 
um, deserved an answer to some degree, that there was something, some pursuit of truth in Pilate up to a point that Jesus wanted to have a conversation with him and felt that this is when I have this conversation. But when he was dragged over to Herod, he just knew something about Herod that Herod doesn't really want answers. Herod just wants conflict for conflict's sake. Herod just wants to show. And Jesus had the discernment to know when and when not to be in a conversation or in a conflict with the person. Not all issues need to be talked about and not all people need to be talked about with on certain issues. The second thing is, is don't miss the tree in the midst of the forest. That sometimes in the middle of a conflict, an insult can take place. A small offense can be said. Um, and then also we get off track on the real issue with something else. It, it's called following the red herring. The, the phrase red herring has been popularized. Uh, it first was used in 1807 by William Cobit, who was writing a story about using strong-smelling strong smoked fish to divert and distract hounds from chasing a rabbit. So he had herring and he just used it to kind of get them off track. See, the problem is, is when we get in a conflict, we have such a nose for offense that we get distracted from the real issue. I mean, all of us are, when we get into conflict, we get in a heightened state of kind of um, olfactory offense. We, we are like just smelling for somebody to use the wrong word or the wrong description or to infer something that, and, and we grab a hold of it and we lock a hold of it and we let loose the, the hounds of war on this argument and we get totally distracted from what the conversation was about. See, in, the, in a conflict, many of the things that are said are from the heat of the moment and not the meditation of the heart. A lot of the things that a husband and wife will say to each other, is they, they probably haven't all been thought out. You know, words like you always or you never get thrown around. And, and we, we allow these things to distract us from the real heart of the issue. And, and Jesus had this ability of not getting off track because of offense. He wasn't always waiting to be offended by somebody by calling the person the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing. See, don't be afraid to ask somebody for clarification in a conflict. Because if you clarify something that has offended you and you ask them for clarification, usually there will be a good explanation. Somebody, a spouse or a loved one or somebody at work or wherever you're having this conflict will say, well, no, that's not what I meant. But what I meant was, and begin to slow the whole process down and just ask for clarification. Don't allow um, the small offenses in the midst of a conflict to get you off track. The third thing is this, and I think this is the biggest part of having a better conflict, is seek first to understand and then to be understood. Now language, and I just recently found this out from linguist expert John McWhorter. He said that language, all languages throughout the world have three main functions that all languages have. And, and, he, and he said, they, you know, it's a very basic understanding of it, but he says they're broken down to these three main functions. Statements like the book is long, 
commands, read the book, and then question, what was the book about? And that all language is conveying these three things, statements, commands, and questions. And the reason why I, I thought that this applied to the issue of conflict was to meter and measure the functions of your language. I mean, if all language, everything that we're speaking is either in the realm of statements, commands, and questions, well, then if I begin to look at at what my proportions are of statements to commands, commands to questions, uh, questions to statements, I can begin to find out what the heart of my language is. Is your language mostly statements? Is your language mostly commands? Or is your, does your language involve questions? If you observe your language, you can track whether you are wanting to be understood more than you want to understand. You see, I mean, if, if, you're, at, if you're making more statements or more commands, then the chances are, and you're not asking many questions, the chances are that you, you want to be understood more than you want to understand. And that's a conflict that's not going to resolve anything. Or put it another way, do you use language to mostly reveal yourself or get to know others? So I think his point was really, really cool because if you can like think about your language, think about your conversation, your interaction with person, with a person and begin to find out whether it's laden with statements and facts and then um, about commands or imperatives all the time. And it's not, doesn't have embedded in it the quality of questions. Um, you begin to find out, well, maybe... Even though this looks like a dialogue where I want to have understanding, I really haven't used the language of understanding. James 1, starting verse 19, says it this way. Know this, my beloved brethren. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I think that's quick to hear is an interesting phrase and, and all quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger, but quick to hear. I think it's funny that speed is associated with listening. I mean, it just doesn't seem like something that goes together real well. I mean, don't we all listen at the same speed? Uh, so when I, I thought about this idea of listening with a sense of tempo or speed, I, I began to think about quick, uh, quick, twitch muscle, the idea of fast response muscle. And, and, and I think what, what James is saying is that we need to develop the muscle of quick response to listening, to just, that's the position that we constantly go in. Um, I also think it, it pictures in my mind this idea of being quick to listen is that organization called SETI. And I think it's like the, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. It's, it's where there's like a bunch of nerds sitting around with headphones and they're listening to um, ET uh, phone home. And, and I, that sure wasn't kind and I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, but you know what I mean? It's, it's, they're sitting around and they're, they're there in front of their instruments. And they're just kind of dialed in and they're going from frequency to frequency to, to, to listen as carefully as possible. They're, they're very quick to respond to whatever they hear and to begin to analyze it and to, and, and to hear to make sure they can understand it. And I think that's what the Apostle James is talking about. It's like, we need to be really 
really good at this. We need to dial it in. We need to put the headphones on, not the microphone. We need to put the headphones on and begin to listen and begin to search the bandwidth to find out if somebody's speaking to us and to try to understand what is being communicated. Then he says, we need to slow down our speech, slow down our anger, you know, our emotional response to what is being said to us by another person. Here's a beautiful biblical fact that comes out of Proverbs 10. It says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudence. Is that the more we get out, we let words come fast, 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 and we let the the dialogue flow where we grab the mic and we begin to speak and we throw off the headphones, that the scripture says what we all know to be true, that the more we run our mouths, the more that sin seems to follow and transgression and then apologies are necessary as we begin to run our mouths. Stop thinking about your next line in the midst of a conflict, especially while they're still trying to deliver theirs. I do this all the time. I'm always listening to what somebody's saying and I'm beginning to formalize my response. You can respond slow. You don't have to respond quickly or fast to convey intelligence. See, I, I'm always under the pressure, well, I gotta have a, a quick uh, retort to whatever they said to show how, how smart I am. And it's like, no, you don't have to respond quick. You don't have to respond fast. Not if your motive and the purpose, your methodology can be slowed down if it is for the purpose of understanding. Now, if you're looking to win and produce a loser, well, then that's the way that you respond. Um, And we also need to know this, particularly in our culture right now, no one is an expert about anyone, not even themselves. I mean, it really is true. No one is an expert about anyone, not even themselves. I mean, I don't even fully understand myself. I'm not an expert about me let alone being an expert about you or an expert about all white people or an expert about all black people or expert about all women women and all men, you know? I mean, I, I, but sometimes we'll get into an argument and we'll just assume with a broad brush, I know what you're thinking, but there's nothing could be further from the truth. Nobody's an expert on me. I'm not even an expert on me. I think there's a scripture that Paul says that no man knows the mind of another man, but the spirit of that man and the spirit of God who searches the deep things of a man. And it's like really only God knows. And then further on, the scripture says that the spirit of God goes between bone and marrow. And, you know, if you'll begin to look at bone is uh, wrapped around the marrow, I mean, there isn't really... You can't see the separation without a microscope. And he says, the spirit of God searches between soul and spirit. Well, we don't know where soul begins and spirit ends and how they co-mingle inside the human uh, experience, but spirit of God does. See, none of us is an expert about any other person on this planet. We're not even experts about ourselves. So that's why we need to listen more. And we need to be quick to listen. We need to put the headphones on and put the microphone down and listen and discover the heart of another human being. The fourth thing we need to do to have really good conflicts is to speak grace-saturated words. Listen to Paul in Colossians 4.2. He says, continually steadfastly in prayer, 
being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, an opportunity to declare the mystery of Christ on the account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak, that I may be, make it clear how I ought to speak. I mean, Paul's saying, listen, one, I'm praying about the opportunity to speak, when I should speak, when I should say the right thing, when I should open my mouth. But then he says, I, I need prayer on to make sure that I say it the right way, the ought to of speech, that I need to communicate it the right way. He goes on and says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always, always, always. I cannot emphasize the word always enough. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You know, and this, com this also applies to conflict, that we need to be speaking in a way that can bring a favorable outcome, even in the midst of conflict. Speaking in opposing position can bring out the, the very flavor of the gospel, as long as it's done with grace and with love. You can totally disagree with a person and yet still bring out love as long as it's done in a graceful kind of way. You remember that time when Jesus is sitting with his disciples and the Pharisees grab this woman who's caught in adultery and they bring them to her and they uh, um, bring her to him and they throw her down on the ground and they challenge him about how Moses said you ought to stone such a person and, and they wanna see what he's going to do. She is caught in the face of the law, okay? She's guilty. You know, and, and she is caught. And, and so here is this ethical dilemma in, fr in front of Jesus and in front of this woman. So Jesus creates a bubble of grace and love. It's kind of like what we're trying to do with the NBA. We're trying to create an environment where a bunch of guys can play basketball without any COVID-19 getting in there and messing it up kind of creating these bubble stadiums. And, um, and, and that's exactly what Jesus does here, is that when she's caught, she's clearly caught uh, in the face of the law, thrown on the ground in front of him, he creates this bubble. And in this bubble of grace and love, he begins to have a conversation. And what most people don't realize, and they will cite the story, that at the end of this conversation, Jesus says, woman, uh, where are those who condemn you? Because they all walked away. And uh, Jesus says, uh, neither do I condemn you. But then he says, go and sin no more. See, most of us forget the fact that he just applied correction in the middle of this incredible moment. Why is it that we, we don't even perceive the correction in the story? It's because he created this great bubble of, of grace and love. And that's what the apostle Paul is saying. You can be at odds with another person's opinion, but if you do it well, if you do it seasoned with grace, looking for an opportunity, asking God for the when to say it, and then the ought to of the speech, that you can, you can go head to head with another person on an issue, but do it in such a way that the fragrance and the aroma of grace fill the room. 
And then you can even correct another person's viewpoint and they don't even notice the correction has taken place because your, your motive, your purpose, and your, your methodology were, the, were for the purpose of bringing a holistic um, response in the relationship. Well-being, healing, correction, love, restoration, all those wonderful things. Paul goes on and says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. I hate that verse. That's Ephesians 4.29 if you want to read it. Um, but you're going to hate it too. I mean, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Well, that just eliminated like 63% of, of uh, the things that I say. But only such as good for building up. Can you imagine? And, and he's talking about conflicts here too. He's not saying that we avoid conflicts. But it's like, listen, don't open your mouth. Um, just because you know the truth and you speak it, but if you speak the truth in the wrong way, that's corruptible talk. See, we think about corruptible talk as like using the F word or the S word or, or calling somebody an idiot or whatever it is, your favorite um, demeaning phrase. We all have them. Uh, I call people juches. It's a real, it really gets them. They hate it. Um, I'm not even sure what a judge is. But he says, don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth. I mean, corrupting a basic idea of truth and then conveying it in such a fashion that is not consistent with the purpose and the methodology of God, you have now corrupted the talk, the conversation on. So whenever we're having a conversation on, on um, morality or about sexuality or maybe some position of scripture, uh, we need to realize that how we say it, it needs to be said in such a way that is said for the building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to hear. And if you can't do it in that particular situation, then you don't say it. Um, number five, ask yourself first, if I win in this conflict, will I make the other person a loser? And what I mean by this is, did they, the other person, get the win they really needed? What did they really need? I mean, they may have been arguing with you about a subject that you proved them wrong in. But what was the undertone? What was their real concern? What was their real worry? What were they really asking you for? What was the win you could have given them? Instead of just proving them wrong, could you have given them something else in return? Not that, you know, everybody gets a trophy at the end of the basketball game and we're all, all winners. But the idea that, you know, you can be in a conflict with a person and if you're heading on a, on a direction where you're going to make this person a loser, I'm talking about the, the total outcome, the sum outcome of the conflict, this person's walking away as a loser, you probably haven't done it Jesus's way. You know, but what is the win that they really needed? Yes, you, maybe you can't con concede some sort of agreement on their ethical viewpoint, but there is something that you can give them. There is something of value that you can communicate to them. That's why when we're in a conflict, we got to establish a hierarchy of values. Christ matters, people matter, and then all the rest. 
But if we're stomping over the principles of Christ and over the dignity of other people just to get to all the rest, then we're probably not doing conflict the right way. Matter of fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, 7 says this, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. That if, if you've won your argument and you've proven that you can do what you're doing and you can, you've argued it, but yet you've lost your brother in the midst of it, you've pretty much lost. And this really needs to be something we need to consider about the way that we're doing conflicts. And then number six, and this is the last one, is start and end the conversation or the conflict by affirming the relationship. Paul does this all the time in his letters. In letters, and this is funny, I was looking at Ephesians, in a letter where he's about to challenge people on issues of sexual immorality, greed, fighting, bitterness, idolatry, coverness, and stealing and lying, and a a plethora of other things. In the middle of all that, he knows he's writing this letter to this, this group of people And he he knows he's going to have to talk to them about these issues that are going on in their lives, okay? He knows it's going on in their lives. So he's writing this letter. Guess how he starts it off? He's not like cracking his knuckles, you know, you know, spitting and, and getting ready to go and okay, we're going in there. He starts off his letter this way. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, what a way to enter into a conversation that you know that's going to become a conflict, where you're going to have to talk about some strong issues um, with, with somebody. And, but, but what a way to start it off. He starts off by affirming the relationship. He starts off by, by revealing the motive and, and what he wants to accomplish out of it. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in the middle of the book, um, he begins to affirm their commonality and, and all the wonderful things that they have in common. And then he begins to deliver the admonition and, and some of the correction that needs to take place. What a beautiful, genuine Christ-like methodology. Affirming the relationship, then affirming their commonality, and then beginning to talk about the issues where they have difference and the things that need to be addressed. But then he doesn't just deliver that and walk out of the room. He ends it this way. I love it. In Ephesians 6, he says, Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. I mean, it's like um, they haven't even fixed the problems yet. Okay? Most of us would hold off on giving this kind of... um, response after having a conflict until once they fix the problem, you know? But he's like, no, I'm gonna enter into this with grace and peace. I'm gonna find commonality, celebrate the commonality. Then I'm gonna talk about our differences, but then I'm gonna exit once again, reaffirming our commonality and, and uh, the motive. You know, this happened in a, a situation with Deanna and my father, they were going fishing. I think I might've told the story once before, but it was really powerful for Deanna, for me, and I think for my pop. Um, we were, they were going fishing, and um, when they went out fishing, 
I was really concerned because my dad was, was, when he was younger as a pop, he was kind of a little rough and he was not always the most pleasant person to be around and, uh, you know, didn't mind uh, giving you a backhand or a belt if, if he felt you needed it. And, and so um, I was concerned about Deanna because Deanna kind of had her own way of doing things and she was only six or seven at the time, but she was that person that always pushed the limits. And and so they went fishing. Uh, as I was uh, sitting in the house waiting for them to come back and knowing they would probably be heading back, I went out to look at the creek and as they come in, I, I saw the little boat coming back up the creek and I saw Deanna in the front just sitting down like this and I knew, all right, it happened. And uh, Deanna gets out of the boat and comes up to me and she said, Dad, I, yeah, and I said, yeah, it happened to me. I got abused. And... Um, and I'm like, okay, hold on, wait a, wait a minute. Well, uh, Grandpa uh, smacked me. And I'm like, okay, all right, well, tell me what happened because, you know, I don't want to go off on my dad on this. And turns out he, he hit her on the hand like this. And she, he said, don't put your hand in the water because um, they were going through a muddy section uh, or don't dip the cup in the water. And uh, she said, uh, I'm not. But then she leaned back over with the cup where he couldn't see it and he couldn't tell if she was just pushing the limits or not. So he, you know, slapped her on the hand, you know. Um, so later that evening, I, I grabbed my dad and I said, Papa, hey, I heard you, you and Deanna had a little thing there and, you know, sounds like she was disobeying you and, and you weren't sure what was going on and you popped her a little bit. And uh, I said, that's, that's good and fine. Um, I said, but we're not done yet. And he was like, what do you mean? I said, well, this is a relationship and we want to protect it. So, so after correction, there's got to be reaffirmation. And what, I, what I'm going to need you to do is to call her into the other room and I just want you to hug her and I want you to just kind of reaffirm that you love her. And I'll tell you, I mean, Pop was about, I don't know, 80 at the time. And uh, he had tears coming out of his eyes. He had just not known the practice of reaffirmation after a conflict. And I think growing up, if, I can't speak for all my brothers and my sister, but I, I think if, if there had been some follow-up after conflict, maybe the conflict wouldn't have stung so hard and so long in our lives. So let me encourage you that after coming out of one of these types of events, reaffirm the relationship, the safety of the relationship. See, there's a reason people don't call Jesus, oh, you know Jesus, the table flipper, or the people whipper, or the mother hater, or the name caller. I mean, nobody refers to Jesus that way. Why does, even though he did all those things and he communicated some very strong things, why is it that we don't refer to him as that? And I think the reason was articulated perfectly by Paul in 1 Timothy when he said, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, people get it. See, people they, can, they listen to your language. Maybe they're not adding up all the statements and all the commands and all the questions and finding out and tallying it, but people get it. They can get motive. They can get what you're after sometimes when they listen to you. And, and it turns out that even in the middle of these moments when Jesus did these things, people never added it all up and say Jesus was an abuser or Jesus was a bully. Um, because... No, his purpose, his motivation, his methodology 
said that he was after some, some healing of relationship between people in God and people with people. And, and people got that. And people, we, we need to realize that people get it. They, they get what you are about. Um, they hear your language maybe more than you do. You know, you don't think you're saying anything wrong, but they're hearing your language. And um, they're getting you maybe more than you get you. Um, one of the biggest mistakes I would say, I would, I would say it's probably the greatest mistake that I've had in the years of being a pastor is not understanding this truth. I have prided myself on the ability to articulate succinctly and to be right at the end of an argument. To be biblically right, scientifically right, rationally right. I mean, all the stuff. I love it. I, um, and uh, what, I guess it wasn't up to like the last five years that I realized that why is it that if I'm so right, nobody's listening to me? You know, it's like, this is foolproof argument. I, I mean, I just slam dunked that. Why isn't anybody, why isn't anybody listening to this? It's because those components of language that begin to communicate something about my motive and about my methodology communicates something about my motive. And, it's, and, and people begin to get it. Does he really care about me or does he just want to be right? Um, were they getting what I was really about? The question was, did I know what I was really about? And let's take this even further. Oh, um, dads, do your kids know what you're about? Uh, do you, um, spouses, husbands and wives, does your spouse know what you're really about? I mean, what are they getting from us? What are they learning about us? Does our neighbor get it from us? I mean, is it possible to talk to somebody of a different race? And even though we don't all know exactly what we're supposed to say, I mean, I, mean, I, I can tell you the average um, black person, whether I call them African-American or I call them black, they'll get it. I mean, whether I get all the words right, they will be able to tell from my, my motive and from my methodology if I really care for them or not. And, and vice versa, I'll be, able to, I'll be able to tell from their motive and from their methodology if really they want, they, they, they want harmony with me as well. So how's it going in your marriage? How's it going with your kids? Is your home best defined as one winner in five losers? Are there banners in your room where you've won these championships? What about your Facebook page? Is your Facebook page a, a place to triumph rightness, um, to, to always win? You're always posting the latest snarky video about being right on a particular subject. Um, Maybe your relationships need fewer statements and even fewer commands and need more questions to be asked the other person. See, I think that's the definition of fighting fair. Fighting fair is when you make less statements, fewer demands, but ask more questions. Because it means that you're fighting and you're conflicted for the pursuit of understanding. And that's where God wants us to go. This is how he wants conflict to happen in our lives. 
So as we pull back from this, and as we go into this moment of, of communion, this time of prayer, uh, this time of worship, let me encourage you to just think about the language of your relationships. Think about what other people may be hearing come out of you. Have you been fighting fair? Are you in all the right conflicts? Are you making losers out of people when they interact with you? These are all really good questions that we need to ask and we need to commit ourselves to the win that Jesus had committed himself, to give his life for our neighbor so that everyone can experience wholeness and love and restoration.